Chapter Twenty Three, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty Three, Part Two. In the evening of that same Sunday, we were ushered into the President's business room, accompanied by Senator Wilson of Massachusetts. Lincoln entered laughing and said that in the morning one of his children told him the cat had kittens, and as he was entering, another told him the dog had pups. So the White House was in a prolific state. The hilarity disturbed us, but it was pathetic to see the change in the President's face when he resumed his burden. Senator Wilson began introducing us severally, but the President said he knew perfectly who we were and requested us to be seated. The conversation was introduced by Wendell Phillips, who with characteristic courtesy expressed our joy at the proclamation and asked him how it seemed to be working. The President said he had not expected much from it at first, and so he had not been disappointed. He hoped something would come of it after a while. Phillips then alluded to the deadly hostility which the proclamation had naturally excited in pro-slavery quarters, and gently hinted that the northern people, now generally anti-slavery, were not satisfied that it was being honestly carried out by the nation's agents and generals in the South. My own impression, Mr. Phillips, said the President, is that the masses of the country generally are only dissatisfied at our lack of military successes. Defeat and failure in the field make everything seem wrong. His face was clouded, and his next words were somewhat bitter. Most of us here present have been long working in minorities, and may have got into a habit of being dissatisfied. Several of us having deprecated this, the President said, at any rate, it has been very rare that an opportunity of running this administration has been lost. To this, Mr. Philip answered in his sweetest voice, If we see this administration earnestly working to free the country from slavery and its rebellion, we will show you how we can run it into another four years of power. The President's good humor was somewhat restored, and he said, Oh, Mr. Phillips, I have ceased to have any personal feeling or expectation in that matter. I do not say I never had any so abused and borne upon as i have been nevertheless what i have said is true replied phillips who then went on to submit our complaint against military governor stanley in north carolina urging the necessity of having in such positions men who were heart and soul in favor of his the president's declared policy of emancipation the facts communicated to us from north carolina were also submitted the president did not deny them he only said that stanley was in washington when the proclamation of september twenty second was issued and then he said he could stand that stand it exclaimed one of our number might the nation not expect in such a place a man who cannot merely stand its president's policy but rejoice in it this vexed the president a little and he said well gentlemen i have got the responsibility of this thing and must keep it yes mr president interposed phillips but you must be patient with us for if the ship goes down it doesn't carry down you alone 
we are all in it well gentlemen said the president bowing pleasantly to phillips whom would you put in stanley's place someone asked if it would not be better to have nobody there than an active opponent of the president's avowed policy another suggested fremont then without command he being the natural representative of a proclamation of emancipation which he had anticipated in missouri i have great respect for general fremont and his abilities said the president sully but the fact is that the pioneer in any movement is not generally the best man to carry that movement to a successful issue it was so in old times wasn't it he continued with a smile moses began the emancipation of the jews but didn't take israel to the promised land after all he had to make way for joshua to complete the work it looks as if the first reformer of a thing has to meet such a hard opposition and get so battered and bespattered that afterwards when people find they have to accept his reform they will accept it more easily from another man the humor and philosophy of this remark was appreciated by us but someone said fremont was hardly a pioneer and mentioned the general welcome given by the loyal press to fremont's proclamation of missouri the president said he did not believe that the northern people as a whole recorded that proclamation with favor eliza wright said he was convinced that the so-called neutral slave states were helping the rebellion more than the seceding states he wished to suggest to the president that the government should not look for any action of those states on the slavery question but should offer every slaveholder a bond of three hundred dollars for each of his adult slaves on condition that they and their children if any should be immediately set free said bonds to be payable when the rebellion was at end and peace restored the president listened closely to eliza wright and replied at some length he said that the proposition to deal directly with individual slaveholders came too late congress had acted and would not take up the subject again the president said he did not believe that his administration would have been supported by the country in a policy of emancipation at any earlier stage of the war he reminded us that he had been elected by a minority of the people all i can say now is that i believe the proclamation is not the bottom out of slavery though at no time have i expected any sudden results from it i remarked to the president that if the course of military events should not be favorable between that time and the election next year we might see the return of a power that would put the bottom in again and his work be overthrown which would not mean merely a restoration of slavery but of disunion for never again could there be a union with slavery there were a few moments of silence and we arose mr phillips expressed our thanks for the kindly reception accorded us in calling his attention to statements of which some could hardly be welcome the president bowed graciously at this and said he was happy to have met gentlemen known to him by their distinguished services and glad to listen to their views adding i must bear this load which the country has entrusted to me as well i can and do my best he then shook hands with each of us in the course of the interview one remark was made by the president which ended my hope for peace he said suppose i should put in the south these anti-slavery generals and governors what could they do with the slaves that would come to them at that moment the northern states were suffering for want of laborers and the draft on their white workmen was steadily increasing but it was not this and other facts showing his 
question rudimentary that i felt so discouraging there was in it a confession that he was putting forward in the south generals and governors who would not carry out his proclamation in good faith by freeing practically as many as possible of those declared free also indicated that although the proclamation was professedly a military measure he did not mean to use it to secure peace for it could compel the southerners to fly to their homes and guard them only if the union posts were in command of anti-slavery men we thus were doomed to go on sacrificing the blood of the best men northern and southern to say nothing of the vast expenditure and money of which one month's outlay could provide a home or a place either at the north or in south america or in haiti for every fugitive coming into our lines they were needed everywhere the fact that the proclamation had been countersigned by the secretary of state instead of by the secretary of war had excited some suspicion that seward had requested this function with an ulterior view to its being ultimately set aside by the supreme court as not purely a war measure president lincoln was clearly not using his proclamation as a war measure he showed a disposition to regard us as simply interest in the negroes and we could not hold him to the fact that our aim was at slavery as the causa causans the commissariat the continuer of the war on the evening after our interview with the president we gave a dinner to our massachusetts senators and representatives with other anti-slavery members the hon henry j raymond of the new york times was present and perhaps one or two other eminent journalists we had hoped to obtain from the speaker some important expression of opinion but the speeches were mainly mere optimistic predictions of the great things that were going to be done the heavy weight of the gloomy present was left on our shoulders in private conversations we discovered that none of these leaders except the hon martin f conway of kansas were willing to utter in the capitol criticisms on the administration they freely made in private even senator sumner whom Seward was intriguing to deprive of the chairmanship of foreign affairs, thought it necessary not to endanger his influence with the President by public remonstrances. We gave them our unanimous impression that such public criticisms need not be personally severe on the President, but were precisely what he needed. He had virtually acknowledged to us that he was influenced by our political antagonists, and advised us to go on convincing the country. Our delegation returned to Boston, to our Commonwealth, and our lectures and bird club talks, with the conviction that the President, with all his forensic ability and his personal virtues, was not competent to grapple with the tremendous combination of issues before him. Footnote 1. In 1885, I consulted some of the survivors of our delegation as to their remembrances of the interview with Mr. Lincoln. My friend, Eleazar Wright, refreshed my memory as to his part in the conversation. Frank Byrd thought that it was not Senator Wilson, as I still think, but the Honorable Oakes Ames, who introduced us to the President. Governor Andrew had given him, Byrd, an official introduction to the President, which, for some reason, he did not deliver. Frank Byrd adds in his letter, The great defect, in my judgment, in Lincoln's character, that he ignored moral forces as having anything to do with the government of this world this nation cannot remain half slave and half free that is a proposition in political economy i would save the union without slavery if i can with it if i must that is atheism don't praise lincoln for what he was not he had praiseworthy qualities enough without miswriting history 
It was the early abolitionists and anti-slavery men who aroused the conscience of the North and set in motion the moral forces which abolished slavery and made the Union worth preserving. End of footnote one. I had the happiness of making near acquaintances with Oliver Wendell Holmes, the author I rank next to Emerson and Hawthorne in American literature. To have listened to his Lowell lectures on the English poets were among the most cherished souvenirs of my first year at Harvard College. Being the chief professor in the medical school, and at the same time occupied with literature, he was too heavily tasked for me to avail myself for my opportunities for making his personal acquaintance at that time. But just after my graduation, I was invited to a dinner of the Saturday Literary Club in Boston, and was seated beside Holmes. It was at the time when his Elsie Venner was beginning to appear, and he told me the story was suggested by the fabled fall of man, the hereditary lowering of a human constitution, by the serpent's bite appeared to him a good theme for a romance. Amade Atchard, in his La Vipère, evidently suggested by Elsie Venner, seems to have recognized this, his afflicted heroine being named Eve. He spoke with high appreciation of Carlyle, especially of the essay on characteristics. Holmes was, however, doubtful about Carlyle's theory that genius is unconscious of its power. He was fraternal with the Unitarians and the witty speaker at their annual banquets, but all that he wrote, and even the speeches, were pervaded by a spirit of skepticism. With profound affection for Emerson, he considered many of the transcendentalists sickly. They throw away the healthy, ruddy-hearted book because they crave something for their inner life, he said. Their inner lives are perpetual mendicants. Emerson told me that Holmes once satirized the transcendental camp by asking, And why is the nose placed in front, but that it maintain a forced smell of the infinite? But Holmes told me that it was not he that said this. It was not only in religious matters that Holmes was skeptical, but in sociological and political theories. He looked upon all such movements with a half-poetic, half-pathological interest, and sometimes humored reformers, as he might a patient, but never gave himself to any reform. He did not believe that the anti-slavery agitation could ever eradicate slavery, and told me when the troubles began in Kansas that he inclined to my view that peaceful separation between the slave and the free states might be the only means of ending discord. Holmes loved to talk about his life as a medical student in Paris. He was the only American scholar and thinker I ever met who appreciated French genius and the moral greatness of Paris. His skepticism I now think of us as the French type, and I have often been reminded of him in talking with Renan. What he most felicitated himself upon was his leading part in securing the general use of anesthetics. He told me that when either was discovered, he had such reverence for it that he thought it might possess some spiritual virtue, and resolved to experiment on himself to find if it had any psychological effect. He prepared the ether, and having placed beside his bed a small table with pencil and paper to record his impressions on awakening, he laid down and applied ether. Sure enough, he presently found himself just conscious enough to seize the pencil, and with a sentiment of vast thought wrote down something. It proved to be these words. A strong scent of turpentine pervades the whole. But he was not satisfied with that, and made another effort. This time, he said, I felt as I wrote that I really had seen the secret of the universe. The words proved to be, Put Jesus Christ into a Brahma press, and that's what you'll get. 
he told me of the incredible amount of superstition even in good society in boston revealed to him by his experiences in securing the use of anesthetics and chopper i was denounced as a blasphemous infidel defying almighty god who had imposed on the female descendants of eve the pains of childbirth even some fairly intelligent women preferred to suffer without such relief it was a battle of years and i had to give many lectures at our cambridge medical school to induce young physicians to deal resolutely with the matter of nathaniel hawthorne also i saw something in those days he had aged considerably since the war began and this trouble was complicated with his anxiety concerning the health of his daughter una i passed a day or two in the house of mr fields with him and remember well the evening when a number of ladies came in with the hope of seeing him it was not long after dinner but hawthorne had gone up to his room i was deputed by mrs fields to go up and bring him down i found him reading defoe's ghost stories and after listening to my request he so entertained me with talk about the stories that i almost forgot my mission he asked me to tell him some of the ghost lore of the negroes in virginia and showed much interest in those i remembered of one he made a note that of a tremendous conflagration towards which a number of negroes ran but found there are only one tiny fire coal hawthorne spoke of his disappointment in not meeting george eliot i mentioned my wish to several ladies in london in whose houses i was a guest but none of them were on visiting terms with her he ascribed this to her regular marriage with g h lewis he sent excuses to the ladies for not going downstairs at breakfast he appeared with a meek look as if expecting reproaches from mrs fields but the sunshine characteristic of our charming hostess warmed him into a happy mood and his talk was unusually free and easy most of it was about england the country he loved much more than can be gathered from his book our old home fields told me that hawthorne was so troubled by the resentful press notices of his book in the english papers that he begged him to send him no more of them when the excitement of the conversation was over and Hawthorne had retired to the end of the room, there was in his face a look of pain and weariness. It was pleasant to meet Hawthorne on the street in Concord, but I recall no conversation of importance with him, nor did I seek any, having long felt that his genius was to be got at only in his pages. He was rather oftener, I believe, at Emerson's house than before he went to Europe. He was cheerful with young people, and I remember his being almost married at a children's party in our house, especially at a charade on the word transcendental. Emerson and Alcott were also present to enjoy our travesty of a transcendental seance, at which Frank Sanborn introduced a poem. The world so rushes into the world's strife, hope gushes anew for life. From the sky, stars fall, the wood bars brow but what of that o brave heart art thou laborer labor on art thou poet go it strong one day when there was to be a children's picnic in the woods near walden pond of which my wife was one of the managers hawthorne intimated to her that he would like to see the children at play if he could do so without being observed my wife bade him come to a certain spot, and she would come to guide him to such a secret place if one could be found. A thicket, or perhaps a hollow tree, was found, and Hawthorne was the only man who witnessed the dances of the little fairies that day. If I had only known then as much of Hawthorne's feelings about the war as I discovered when writing his life thirty years later, 
I would have availed myself at my opportunities to make a nearer acquaintance with him. If, he wrote to his friend Horatio Bridge, we are fighting for the annihilation of slavery, to be sure it may be a wise object, and offer a tangible result, and the only one which is consistent with the future union between North and South. How glad would Sanborn and I have been to print that sentence as a motto in our paper, The Commonwealth. Perhaps I may anticipate here a further chapter sufficiently to relate the kindness of Hawthorne to my wife in the summer of 1863, when I was in England and being much condemned in America for my proposal to the Confederate envoy there for ending the war by Southern emancipation of the slaves. While my wife, left in Concord, was in distress because of this condemnation by our anti-slavery friends, Hawthorne treated her with marked kindness. When he heard that she was about to join me in England, she was invited to the wayside, where he showed her his foreign photographs and entertained her with his reminiscence of persons and places there. This was always a grateful remembrance with us, but as to the sadness with which to this day I think of the finest imaginative genius of his time there in his tower writing the tale of an elixir of eternal youth, while himself consciously sinking into his grave. End of chapter 23, part 2 Recording by Ginger Cucolo, Washington, D.C.